Once upon a time, there was a father who had a precious daughter. Just, a, just about the most precious possession in this father's life. He used to walk her to school, used to take her to carnivals, where there'd be balloons and candy and face painting, and he'd buy her pretty dresses and get her get pictures with her at the church's annual daddy-daughter date night. Then he'd proudly post uh, her watercolored ponies there on the refrigerator. Then one day that father blinked and that little girl grew up and became a young lady. I mean, it happened just like that. And she was out of college and on her own and working. And one weekend she came home with a friend a boyfriend. And it's meet the parents weekend. And, and that father quickly became Robert De Niro. Who's this guy? Where's he from? Does he have a job? Does he have a Bible? Does he read his Bible? What's he want? What's he want with her? And, and these are the questions orbiting around this father's brain as he's, as he's smiling at her and, and sizing him up. And over the course of several Meet the Parent weekends, this father you know, just came to the conclusion that he just did not like what he was seeing, period. Didn't like it one bit. Tried to give the guy a benefit of a doubt. Tried, but just got bad vibes. Bad vibes, and alarms were going off, and then this dad started asking around, and then the five alarm bells started going off. And this guy, this father finds out is really not, he's just, he's no good. There's, he, but he's so smooth, so charming, so winsome. The father could see it, but the daughter couldn't see it. Or could she? I mean, he just wasn't really sure. I mean, could she or couldn't she? If she could, why is he still here? If she can't, then what's going on? I mean, it's just, you know, either way, the father has seen this movie before and he knows how it ends. And this dad is just, you know, between, he's in between rage and helplessness because she's an adult now. And she's on her own now. And she's paying her own bills, and she's making her own decisions. And, and at the same time, though, you know, dad's got to say something. And so, this father writes this passionate parental love letter to his little girl, warning her, honey, please be careful. Please, please watch out. Please be a woman of God. Please don't settle. And please don't let yourself be fooled. Please. And, and, and then all of a sudden, as if this dad were, were brandishing a, an automatic weapon, out of the barrel of his pen fires word picture after word picture in, in which he, he's describing what he knows about this creep. Honey, this guy, is, he's as dark as the Joker. He's as greedy as Gordon Gecko. He's as twisted as Hannibal Lecter. And because he's a Christian, he adds to the pile Judas, Ahab, Ananias, and Diotrephes, and a few other bad boys of the Bible. All of this, every one of those rapid fire word pictures in an attempt to arrest his little girl's heart. She's not given in yet. 
but she's dangerously close to the kill zone. And, you know, through tears, finally, he ends the letter, Honey, I I love you. I love you, I love you, I love you. Dad. That is how we need to read what we're going to read in the New Testament letter of Jude, verses 3 through 19. So take your Bibles, if you would, and in your church Bibles, it's page 866. And I want you to hear, I want you to hear a father's heart as we hear Jude's words. Beginning in verse 3, I'm going to read to verse 19. Dear friends, and and, uh, literally that's the word beloved. Oh, beloved. Some of your translations have that, don't they? Beloved. You know, I love you. Beloved, loved ones. Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men, as the boyfriend, whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They're godless men who changed the grace of our God into a Lessons for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal life, uh, eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers, talking about the boyfriend now, pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do understand by instinct like unreasoning animals. These are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them. They've taken the way of Cain. They've rushed uh, Uh, for profit into Balaam's error. They've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men, and the boyfriend, their blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest Darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of 
all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, but beloved, Remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. God's Word. Can you hear fatherly passion that Jude has for these these beloved believers? Can you? I mean, he's in angst over his beloved church family. He can see their faces while he's writing the letter. And he's just, he's in angst over their situation. And he can also see the faces of the false teachers and he's in anxiety if not anger over the audacity that these pretenders have to worm their way and intrude upon this holy spiritual community with an attempt to spin God's grace into an excuse for sexual immorality and as a reminder sexual immorality in the Bible, is related to Genesis chapter 2, 24, where, where God's word stipulates the appropriate place for sexual intimacy. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This, this most intimate, personal act between uh, two human beings, the most personal expression of vulnerability, God says, must take place within the protection of a one-man, one-woman marriage relationship. And so any other expression of intimacy in whatever form outside of that boundary, God prohibits and, and yet, these false teachers are twisting that, twisting God's grace into an excuse for sexual behavior outside God's prescribed boundaries for his, for his people. I mean, can you imagine one of our elders showing up in a, in a small group? You know, the early church didn't meet in a big room like this. I mean, yeah, they, they, they met in house churches. Can you imagine an elder getting up and, Leading a house church uh, uh, with a lesson along the lines of this reasoning, brothers and sisters, you know, when we sin, God gives grace. And when God gives grace, it brings him glory. And when God gets more glory, it makes him look good. More sin, more grace, more glory. It all makes God look good. So then this week, go make God look good. 
messaging off. And when you strip that away, that's exactly what the message was. And some were in danger of buying into this rubbish, buying into this ungodliness. And Jude wants to make sure that his beloved people, that God's people, those who were called and loved and kept by Jesus Christ, Jude wants to make it absolutely clear to God's people. He wants them to understand who they're dealing with. And he wants us to understand this too. Listen, look up here for a minute. This is why this matters. In, in a church our size, in a church our size, there's a strong likelihood, in, and I'm talking about this service right here, right now. There's a strong likelihood that someone here is playing with fire. Someone. There's a strong probability that someone here is, is dabbling with disaster. Someone here who is, who is one foolish financial decision away from just disaster. Someone who is, who is one relational issue away from self-destruction. And you keep saying to yourself, it'll be okay. It's different in my circumstance. It's different for me. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. And Jude says, please, please, no. Listen, listen, listen. If, if, if you're toying with that, would you, would you please consider the way of Gollum? Would you? You know Gollum, don't you? Right? Slimiest character in Lord of the Rings. Right? Who was he in the previous life? Who was Gollum in his previous life? Remember? Am I the only one who watches movies? Huh? Smeagol. He was a hobbit. Right? Whose obsession with the ring deformed him into, you know, Gollum. So how, how, where'd that name come about? Well, you know, remember, it's, it, it, he got that, 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 this horrible guttural, throaty, you know, noise there. Gollum, all right? That's it. Huh? Who became a slave to the ring. A slave. And, and this is what Aragorn said about Gollum. Aragorn said his malice gave him strength hardly to be imagined. And that's exactly what happens to us when we go after the boyfriend in Jude's letter. That's exactly us. And you know what? You, let's go back to Gollum here for a minute. You, you, Gollum never... We never see Gollum as Gollum when we first meet Gollum. Because if we did, what would, who would date him? <laughs> right? But you see, that, that's never how he looks when you, on the first date, ever. I promise you. Never. And so listen to what Judah said. Judah's saying this. Resist this guy or you will resemble this guy. 
If you do not resist Gollum, you are going to resemble Gollum. If you do not resist ungodliness when it rears its ugly face, you are going to become ungodly. And when ungodly leaders try to sway God's people, God's people need to resist or else they will become ungodly. And if we don't fight the satanic efforts to turn us from Christ, we'll end up turning from Christ. It's that simple. That's Jude's message. Someone wrote, just because the brilliant commander-in-chief promises victory on the beach doesn't mean the troops can throw their weapons overboard. The promise of victory assumes valor in battle. When God promises that his church will be kept from defeat, his purpose is not that we lay down our sword and go eat lunch, but that we pick up the sword of the Spirit and look confidently to God for strength to fight and win. And whenever the promised security of God is used to justify going AWOL, you can, you can just bet there's a traitor in the ranks. And Judah's saying, there is a traitor. There's a traitor in the ranks. And in verse 4, Jude points out there are two key errors. Jude, Jude 4 says they are, have twisted God's grace into sexual immorality and they deny the sovereignty of of Jesus. And so in verses 5 through 19, Jude simply describes Gollum head to toe. He just gives a he just gives a description of Gollum and and masterfully and persuasively Jude like he's brandishing an automatic weapon out of the barrel of his pen fires word picture after word picture in sets of threes in an attempt to tell the church to stay away from them. Now, why threes? Well, because Jude is writing to a Hebrew audience, and in the Hebrew culture, a testimony was confirmed on the presence of two or three witnesses. And so with each triplet, Jude is asserting the corroborating truth in sets of threes about who these jokesters are. All right? And so his style, his style shows how serious he is to his beloved church family. So I, let's just, I just want to talk to your heads for a minute here so that we understand what we're reading when we go through uh, the verses here. Verses 5 through 7, there's a triplet of willful diver, uh, of desertion from God. Jude reminds the church of three incidents in Israel's history of willful desertion. The first one had to do with Israel, who left Egypt, but they were not faithful to God. Uh, Either Exodus 32 or Numbers chapter 14, uh, and they were destroyed. That's the first of the triplet. Then in the second one had to do with an an account in Genesis chapter 6 concerning rebellious angels who abandoned, and this kind of sounds like you know, scriptural science fiction. It's really eerie, but you can read about it in Genesis 6 concerning rebellious angels who abandoned their proper position to selfishly pursue sexual relations with human wives. And this ended disastrously as they who refused to keep their positions of angelic authority are now kept in eternal darkness. And then the third of this triplet had to do with the rebelliousness of Sodom and Gomorrah 
whose sexual immorality and other sins led to its complete and absolute destruction. So three historical incidents, a triplet, showing examples of willfully abandoning the leadership of the Lord. And and so Jude says in verses 8 through 10, what happened in the past is now being replayed in the lives of these false teachers you know, who pollute their bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. Well, there's a triplet there, right? And, 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 and Jude says these false teachers are so arrogant that they're willing to do what the archangel Michael refused to do. And at this point, in verse 9, Jude cites an illustration that was considered legend. When Moses died, the archangel Michael went to bury him with honors. And according to the story, Satan shows up and challenges Michael, reminding Michael that Moses was a murderer and should not be buried with honors. But Michael, who understood that Satan was speaking insultingly and slanderously against Moses, Michael also knew that God was the ultimate judge. And so Michael refused to get into a debate with the devil. He simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, that was a legend in a document called the Testament of Moses. The Testament of Moses. And Jude knew that his audience was familiar with that particular document. And so he used it. He said, well, why, would he, why, would, why wouldn't he pick an example from the Bible? Well, why do I sometimes use illustrations about contemporary movies? See, I'm trying to connect. And so Jude was connecting with his audience by calling to mind a familiar legend to make this point. And the point is this. The heretics think that they have higher spiritual knowledge But the fact of the matter is, the only knowledge they have is that of a wild animal in heat, like unreasoning animals. Verse 10. And so Jude goes on in verse 11 to use another triplet. He he uses the phrase, the way of Cain. Now, most of us here would know who Cain was. Cain and Abel, uh, children of Adam and Eve. And Cain murdered his brother Abel. Uh, He was was considered the first heretic. He defied God and he despised uh, his brother. And again, he was, just a, he was just in rebellion. And then there's Balaam's error. Balaam was a prophet in the book of Numbers, a prophet for hire. He was a mercenary prophet and he led God's people into sexual immorality. So every one of these illustrations either have to do with rejecting God's leadership or sexual immorality. And then there's Korah's rebellion. Korah was one of the leaders in Israel who staged a coup with 250 other leaders against Moses. <laughs> Think about it. Korah challenged the very guy who talked with God regularly. Not smart. But you see, the triplet is, is their testimony about who these godless heretics are. And then in verses 12 to 13, uh, Jude uses four nature images. Do you see that? Clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. And then what about autumn trees who bear no fruit, huh? What's that? Well, if you're from Texas, you would know that equates to big hat, no cattle. Big hat, no cattle. They're just all talkers. They're false teachers, all about appearances and packaging, but they have no substance or content. They're just very well-wrapped, empty boxes. That's all they are. And then 
Jude speaks of them as wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. There's another triplet there talking about waves. What's he say about the waves? They're wild. They're foaming up. And the foam here is the foam of pollution as these fall with shame. These false teachers are getting their, their filthy moral foam slathered, all, immoral foam slathered all over the church family. And then he calls them wandering stars. Wandering stars. That's a metaphor describing their rebelliousness. Why why wandering stars? Well, stars don't wander. Stars stay on a fixed course. Why look there's there's the constellation Orion. I mean, that looked that way when I was a kid. Have you ever gone outside and, and one of the stars in the belt of Orion is missing? What happened to that star? Oh, it went off on a little trot. It'll be back next year. No, it's there. It'll be there next year and the year after. It doesn't wander at all. It stays on a fixed course. But not the heretics. Not the boyfriend. And, and Jude says, Beloved, honey, there's going to come a day when God's going to deal with them. That's in verses 14 and 15. And, and in those verses, Jude quotes from another Hebrew extra-biblical source. It's a, uh, it's a book that was uh, written around 300 years before Christ. It's, it's called First Enoch. First Enoch. So somewhere, someone around 300 years before Christ wrote a book. And as you know, Enoch was um, a, a man of God in the book of Genesis. And so someone you know, about 300 years before Christ, wrote a book and then put Enoch's name on the front cover, maybe because they thought it would sell more copies. Who would buy a copy called First Randy? Not going to happen. So First Enoch, all right? That's really kind of how it worked back then. And in First Enoch, chapter 1, verse 9, it describes the coming of the Lord to take care of business to punish evil once and for all. And Jude's point is that when the Lord returns, and in Jude's mind, he's talking about the the second coming of Christ. God's gonna, the ungodly will be judged. And you notice there, uh, verse 14 and 15, he uses the word ungodly four times. Four times. It's it's not going to escape. They won't escape. So, so it's a warning to the believers. You know, if you ride with the ungodly outlaws, you're going to die with the ungodly outlaws. So it's a message about the coming judgment when Christ comes. But, but you know what? Judgment is more than just a warning, isn't it? Isn't it? You know, it it's really should be encouraging and motivating to us. And here's why. Here's why. You know, in first service, you know, right over in this section here, Um, I saw Pat and Sherry Muzzy sitting together. Pat had come back from a year of deployment. And, uh, you know, I was so thrilled when uh, Martin and Beth's Nick returned and after his time in deployment. And I spoke with a, you know, set of grandparents first service about their grandson who has just been deployed. You know, I'm just looking forward to the day when... We could just get our soldiers home. You know, I'm just tired of all this ungodliness. I'm tired of this evil. I'm, I'm, you know, I want us to find Osama bin Laden. He needs to be dealt with. Let's, I'm looking forward to that day. 
see? And Jude assures us that there's going to come a day when God is going to return. And in a world of systematic ungodliness, in a world of ungodly sinners and ungodly ways and ungodly deeds, the thought that there might come a day when the ungodly are firmly put in their place and the poor and the weak are, are given their due, is that not the best news that we can face in a world of rebellion and exploitation and wickedness? A good God must be a God of judgment. And so therefore, Jude says, you've got, to, you've got to resist Gollum. You either resist him or you will resemble him. You either fight against him or you will fall for him. And if we do not fight against the satanic efforts to turn us from Christ, then we'll turn from Christ. That's it. That's Jude's message. Now let me just ask this question. Who are you in this letter? Who are you in the story? Who are you? Any boyfriends show up here? Huh? Don't raise your hand. Don't make me come down there. <laughs> hmm? False teachers? See, here's the deal on that. Here's the deal on that. We, we are... We're either centered on ourselves or we're centered on God. That's the deal. There's there's no alternative. Either God is the center of our universe and we, we become rightly adjusted to him, orbiting our lives around his will and his ways, or we make ourselves the center and we want others to orbit their way around us. And Jude says, that's just not gonna happen. Maybe here this morning there's a, there's, a, there's a father. You're the father in this story. You know, like Jude was. Hmm? Isn't it amazing how, how keen Jude's vision was to be able to see through the pretty packaging? Isn't it amazing? That's our challenge, isn't it? That is our challenge if you're the father, if you're like Jude, like the father, like Jude. The challenge for us is can we spot a counterfeit when we see one? Can, are, do we have the discernment and the wisdom to look beyond appearances, to see what's inside? Do we think critically enough to, to look through and see through the sugar coating, the airbrushed images? I mean, do I get it here that these people, the ones described in you know, 12 and 13, uh, 16, 19, that they, look, they looked attractive enough to follow, didn't they? Can I see that? Jude could. You know, what, what were they wearing, saying, singing, praying, reading, doing, driving that caused the members of the Christian community to be led astray? I mean, and how is, how is it possible for those who have the Spirit of God within them to be led astray by those who do not have the Spirit of God in them. Can I see through that? And Jude's fatherly challenge is simply this. You know, in our world today, there are other lovers who want to woo us from the one grand romance that is to be the core of our existence. 
Where in your life are the other lovers who are wooing us, competing for our love for Christ? Jude says, with all the fatherly passion that he can muster, you must prepare for their seduction. You must steel yourselves against their temptations. Because all they offer is spiritual adultery and disaster. And speaking of that one grand romance, maybe you're the daughter. Maybe you're the beloved in the letter of Jude. Do you realize, you know, see, lose the boyfriend because God our Father already has a bridegroom selected for you. There's no one better than Jesus. No one. Martin Luther once said, faith unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. This means that what Christ possesses belongs to the bride and what the bride possesses belongs to Christ. Now Christ, our bridegroom, he possesses all good things and holiness. He possesses blamelessness. He is holy and sinless. Well, well, now all of these belong to the bride. What does the bride possess? Oh, you know. <laughs> lots of vices and lots of sin. But now these belong to Christ. Through his death and burial and resurrection for our sins, Christ, the rich, noble, holy bridegroom takes in marriage this poor, contemptible, and sinful little prostitute and takes away all her evil and bestows all of his goodness and all of his glory upon her. And Martin Luther says, now is this not a happy business? The poet once wrote, in the mirror one day I saw a self, body, mind, emotion. I took a closer look and peered into my soul. What did I see? Brokenness, fear, envy, lust, insecurity. Once, once more I looked into the mirror but this time I saw a redeemed self. This time I saw a beautiful self. And why? Because this time I saw in the background Jesus Christ. By his grace, he redeemed me. And now he is making me into the self I want to be. The self that I really am. Beloved, why would anybody want to leave that? 